May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It is a curious fact about human nature that we cannot see ourselves. For the vast majority of human history, people did not really know what they looked like. If you were rich, you might be able to make out something of your reflection in a polished sheet of bronze. If you were poor, you might be able to make out something of your reflection in a still surface of water. Nowadays, of course, we have cheap, widely available, highly reflective mirrors. And if we want to make sure our hair is on point, we just take a selfie, right? But the fact is, even in such a mirror as that, even on your phone, you don't see yourself. You see a reflection of yourself. This curious fact has a spiritual analog. Just as we never see ourselves with our physical eyes, so it is also true that we don't have direct knowledge of who we are. We are aware that we exist. We know we are somewhere, someplace. We have a history. We have markers of our identity. But we don't know who we really are just by seeing ourselves. We know ourselves, who we really are, only through the reflection of others. We know ourselves indirectly, via the detours of our parents, siblings, our friends, our loved ones. These all show us who we are to ourselves. Today's episode from the Gospel of John can be read as a story about seeing, about how we are seen by others, and how we see ourselves in the reflection of others. Jesus encounters a man who has been blind from birth. He has never seen anything, much less himself. And he knows himself only in the reflection of others. In fact, the blind man encounters many groups of such others in today's passage. The first group of others he encounters in this story are the disciples of Jesus himself. They ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? So the disciples look at this man, and they see someone who is being punished for sin. 
The second group of others in this story are the religious authorities. This is not the same group as the Pharisees. I'll talk about them in a second. These are the temple authorities, the priestly rulers. And ever since the book of Leviticus, their job has been to confirm that a disease that has cut you off from the community has been cured. Only God, of course, cures disease. But the priests are there in part to verify that a formerly diseased person is now cured and can be ceremonially welcomed back into the community. We are told that this group did not believe that this man had been blind and had received his sight until they consulted the man's parents. And interesting it is that the disciples should have mentioned the man's parents as being potentially responsible for their son's blindness because now we actually get to meet the parents. In fact, they're the third group of others in this story. They, of course, see their own son. We know that this man is our son and that he was born blind but they see their son radically transformed, healed, in a way that is inexplicable and disturbing. They're afraid of ostracism, the judgment of the religious authorities, and so they also look at their son and they see in him a cause for alarm, a potential scandal. They see someone, they say, is old enough to answer to the religious authorities for himself. And they think it's safer for everyone if he does. But when he does answer for himself, he doubles down on his story to the point that he enrages the religious authorities who insist that he was born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they don't welcome him back into the community. They cast him out. The religious authorities, like the disciples, see a man born in sin, which implies that they see his parents as sinners too. And they conclude they have nothing to learn from this man and his family, and they can safely throw him out. Then there's the Pharisees, the fourth group of others encountered by this man. They are not the same as the religious authorities, and they have a different concern. They are not here to verify that the blind man has been cured. They are here to enforce the Sabbath. Their concern is not that this man has received his sight, but rather how he has received his sight. In the other Gospels, Jesus is presented as healing on the Sabbath, either by his words, or by touch, or both. Only John's Gospel reports that Jesus healed people by means that were strictly forbidden, and that is what is upsetting the Pharisees here. Jesus mixes spittle and earth to make clay, and mixing earth is definitely forbidden on the Sabbath. So some of the Pharisees, at least, conclude that Jesus cannot be a prophet 
because he is a Sabbath breaker. And they see this blind man as his accomplice. The fifth group of others in this story are the blind man's neighbors. They can't even seem to figure out what it is they see in this man because they can't even decide if they've got the right guy. Is this the same guy as before? No, but it does look like him, right? If we see ourselves in the reflection of others, the blind man sees himself as these others see him. as a man being punished for sin, as a man born in sin who has nothing to offer by way of wisdom or insight, as the son of his timid, agitated parents, as the friend of a Sabbath breaker, as someone who is unrecognizable to his neighbors, a man whose name we don't even know, a man who was born blind. It may help to know that in the ancient world, vision was thought to operate very differently from the way we understand now. We know scientifically that we see because light impinges on our eyes. Light enters in. The ancient world actually thought that we see because the eye projects light. Light goes out. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says that the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is not the window of the body. It's the lamp of the body. It emits light. So when we think of being blind, we tend to think of that as having a kind of barrier that prevents light from coming into the eye. They thought that being blind was like lacking light within. Without light, we cannot see. That is obvious to us. But to the ancient world, it was even more obvious because light was not just the medium in which vision operated. For them, light is the power of sight. Light is what makes seeing happen. The blind man is blind because he lacks light. Does he lack light because he is being punished for sin? Jesus does not see him this way. Instead, he teaches a valuable lesson to his disciples. Is he blind because he sinned? No. Not every misfortune is a punishment. Some misfortune just is. The man's blindness is not a punishment. It is an opportunity.
for the glory of God to be made manifest. And as Jesus goes on to teach and to demonstrate in himself, the marvelous works of God will be brought forth in this man. Who he is will be the place where the glory of God will enter in. But this is actually nothing less and nothing other than what John has been saying from literally the very beginning of the gospel. Chapter 1. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. A truly terrible translation. One that we should probably stop repeating, actually. The Greek does not mean comprehend, either in the literal sense of surround or the figurative sense of to understand. The word here means to come against, like that. John 1 says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not take it down. Here in this chapter, Jesus says expressly, I am the light of the world. The darkness did not take down the light because the darkness cannot take down the light of the world. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And what is this miraculous restoration of sight, if not the paradigm instance of the true light lighting up the darkness of the blind man? What better example do we have in John's gospel of the light of the world, Jesus Christ himself confronting the darkness, the lack of light that is this blind man's condition, and not being taken down by that darkness, but rather taking the darkness down and putting it entirely to flight. Then when that happens, when that happens, the blind man truly sees. He sees not just literally with his bodily eye, he sees the light of the world. You can see this unfolding gradually. As the blind man converses with these many groups of others, he gives a number of ways to possibly understand who Jesus might be. He tells his neighbors, a man called Jesus told me to wash, and after that I could see for the first time, for the first time ever. Where is he now, they ask. The blind man says he doesn't know. Some of the Pharisees say Jesus cannot be from God. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes, they ask. The blind man says maybe he's a prophet. The religious authorities quiz the blind man's parents. How then does your son now see, they ask. They say they don't know. They accuse Jesus of being a sinner. How did he open your eyes, they ask. The blind man says, he must worship God, he must be from God in some way, otherwise he could do no such thing. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This miracle is utterly unprecedented, and everybody knows it. But the blind man's last conversation his last conversation is with Jesus. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He asks. The blind man says, well, who is he? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, 
and it is he who speaks to you. Notice the choice of words. So simple and yet so meaningful in this context. You have seen him. And that's why Jesus heals this man's blindness. So that he can see. So that he can see Jesus himself. So that he can see the light of the world. And now finally he does see. He sees not someone merely from God, not someone who might be a prophet, not someone who just worships God. He sees someone who is worthy of worship. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Well, in the Bible, you only worship God. So if the blind man worships Jesus, it's because he's determined that he is the Lord, the one truly and uniquely sent from God, the Son of Man, the light of the world, sent to enlighten everyone in the world. Because Jesus Christ is not only the object of our sight, He is the means by which we see anything at all. Jesus tells us that the night is coming when no one can work, but as long as he's present, as long as he's here with us, we can still see, because he is the light that enlightens everyone. And when we are enlightened by the light of Christ, we see him, and in his light, we see everything else, ourselves included. The blind man says many times that there are things he does not know. He makes several attempts at trying to describe who Jesus might be before he finally ends up at the truth. But there is one thing he says he knows. Verse 25. One thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. If we are to know ourselves, if we are to know who we truly are, we will have to admit that all of us, all of us, were blind. We were blind from birth. The blind man, though, sees something about himself. He sees something that others do not. It's a bit of a shame that the lectionary reading, long as it already is, is not a little bit longer. (laughs) 
Because in the very next verse, we get this. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees overheard him say this. And they said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The blind man is not guilty of anything for which his blindness is a punishment. The guilt consists in being blind, but fooling yourself into thinking you can see. The guilt consists in staying blind. We were all born blind. But by the light of Christ, we can say, I was blind. Now I see. Amen.